Your brain might just help you learn something in more ways than one. Welcome to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Dr. Bell is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He'll be your guide on this crazy exploration designed to bring life back into our existence. Can you become the element of change in an ever-changing world? Possibly, but you've got to listen on to find out. Now, here is the host of Absurd Psychology, Dr. Gary Bell. Welcome, everybody. All right, today we're talking about making confident decisions. You know, it's really interesting because one of the things in life that's very, very important is to understand the context of why you're making a decision. You know, a lot of people will make, especially if you're depressed or anxious, or if your philosophy is fear-based, or if you're a procrastinator, or if you have all kinds of other things that you do about making decisions, indecisive people uh, can feel extremely amount of anxiety just because they cannot make a decision. But the context of making a good decision has to do with whether or not you make it when you're emotional or when you're logical. And logical choices call for a cost-benefit analysis. And if we're able to do that in our decision-making on a consistent basis, especially around the big decisions that we make in this life, then we have a tendency to have a much steadier balance in our life and we have much more integrity in our life. We will often redebate decisions that we make emotionally and impulsively and continue to redebate them over and over and over and over again. And so the bottom line is if you want to have a clear brain and a clear head, make more logical choices than you do emotional. Use emotion to push your logic so that you will make good choices. And that means you're motivated to make those choices through your emotion. And that's what emotions are for, to motivate you. But they're not the basis of a decision. So if you think about it, you know, chocolate or strawberry, life or death, you know, we make choices quickly and automatically sometimes. And relying on mental shortcuts our brains have developed over the years to guide us in the best course of action is often something that we rely on. However, not all decisions we make are cookie cutter. And sometimes those fast, simple, basic muscle memory decisions may not lead us, if we do it on a consistent basis, may not lead us to have good relationships or actually do what's best for us. You know, understanding strategies like maximizing and satisfying, fast versus slow thinking, and factors such as risk tolerance, choice overload, can lead to better outcomes. You know, choice overload is huge in people's development since way, you know, and and now in these years that we're in 2022, the bottom line is a lot of people especially young people have choice overload. They're having to make micro choices at their age. And what was once 18 is now 32 maturity wise, simply because they have to make so many micro choices to develop where they're going to go with their life. And 32 is about the time that they have made enough choices to at least get a direction and start committing themselves to that. As far as a career, as far as life, as far as integrity, as far 
far as relationships. People are getting married much later simply because the maturity factor is just not there. You know, uh, you know, we want to have better outcomes. And when making the decision, we form opinions, choose actions with mental processes which are influenced basically by biases, reasoning, emotions, and memories. And the simple act of deciding supports the notion that we have free will. But we also, if you're a Christian, we have the responsibility to consult with God. And if we have a partner as a Christian, our relationship with our partner is reflective of their relationship with God. So if you ever want to know where you stand with God, see how you treat your partner, and that will tell you exactly what kind of person you are and what your relationship is with God. You know, when people are put in familiar situations, their decisions are often fast and automatic, and it's based on experience with what works and what doesn't. However, when encountering a situation when we've never been in before, then we have to take the time to weigh the potential benefits and the risks of choosing that. And we're more likely to make mistakes and face negative consequences. But if you're a perfectionist, that becomes very hard. And so what we have to understand is that life is experiential learning. And that means there are going to be situations where mistakes are made and the consequences are not always positive. That doesn't mean we're not going to learn from them. And that's the basis of life. It's taking leaps of faith and joining those decisions, enjoying making those decisions and going through the experience of making those decisions. Just like you do when you go on vacation. You go on vacation and then you fill in the gaps when you get there. And, and, and so as you do, you adventure and you make choices and you make new choices and then you have new experiences. That's how we get through life. But if people are indecisive and perfectionistic or overly critical, they're going to have a hard time in life and they're not a lot of fun. And it's really not fun to be around them. And it's certainly not fun to be tied to them if they're indecisive. Your character, who you are, is based off your choices. The more choices you make, the better people get to know you. The fewer choices you make, nobody knows how to approach you, talk to you. There's nothing in common. It's hard to approach you. And if you're lonely, well, that's because you won't make choices. You have to do that in life. Unfortunately, if you're going to fear that, you're not going to live much of a life. You know, how do we choose between two or more options that seem equally appealing on the surface? Decision making usually involves a mixture of intuition and rational thinking, critical factors, critical details, including your personal biases and your blind spots. And those things are often unconscious, which makes decision making hard to fully operationalize and get a handle on it. However, there's steps to ensure that people make consistently excellent choices, including gathering as much information as possible, considering the possible alternatives, as well as our attendant benefits and costs. So we take the time to sleep and weigh our decisions. We take the time to have patience to make our decisions. If people are rushing us to make decisions that are difficult and that can, can impact our entire 
life for a long time, then what we have to do is slow down and make sure we are making good choices. If there's not a right decision, then try to get it into the ballpark. You know, it's easy to experience decision paralysis or feel less satisfied with your decisions, but you may blame yourself when you're really going through choice overload. So the key is to find ways to simplify your decision and not ruminate over many roads not taken. The bottom line in choices is integrity. Is it something that I can follow when I'm not around other people and when I'm around other people? You know, decision making, some people make it so stressful and and some people just cannot follow through. They'll make a decision and not follow through with it. And you may need to accept that panic, fear, and the lack of self-confidence are part of the decision-making process. And if we're going to measure everything on failure and a failure narrative that, you know, failure is such a deep and horrible thing. No, failure is a necessity of life. Failure is the scientific process. We need to embrace failure and we need to face failure. And we need to take accountability for failure. And we also need to have more failure in our life. It's not the failure. It's not in your in your reaction that's important. It's in your choice of response that's important in your decision making. And, and, and even though it's stressful, we need to embrace that in life if we're going to have a fulfilling life. You know, the, 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 the field of behavioral economics demonstrates that people are not always rational when it comes to decision making. Fortunately, most personal and professional choices have few or no long-term uh, negative consequences. However, sometimes a person has to make a decision that will have a profound impact on their future, from who they marry, to where they're going to live, to how much how they manage their career. You know, in these cases, it's important to avoid common pitfalls that can lead to poor decision making. And these can include doing too little or too much research research or mistaking options for facts or, or opinions for facts. And that's what people love to do these days. They want to validate their own opinion as if they're right. And then they delude themselves to believe that only their perception of the truth is the truth. And then they call it the news. You know, it's, it's sad, but that's the way things are these days. Also, decision fatigue. Some people just get overwhelmed by making too many decisions or a failure to learn from past errors. Errors. There's just all kinds of stuff that comes our way, but don't try to make a decision you that make the decision uh, that you would make to railroad yourself or self defeat yourself. Make a decision that will excite you. Once you've made a choice, now find an emotion that will motivate you. Whether it's frustration, whether it's anger, whether it's jealousy, whether it's rage, whether it's to prove something to somebody, whether it's happiness, whether it's bliss or peacefulness, whatever that emotion is, you need to attach it to your decision so that you follow through. You know, people that commonly engage uh, are either they have prospective, which hopefully that's what you have, or they have retrospective, which means we're looking back all the time. If you're a person who's always retrospective with your decisions, that tells you that you're an emotional decision maker more often than a logical decision maker. We want to be prospective. We want to look forward and, and, and rationalize decisions 
decisions before making it and see what comes about from those decisions. You know, when a large number of people are involved in making decisions, it also can turn into what's called groupthink. And groupthink is when well-intentioned people make poor or irrational choices out of a desire to conform or avoid dissent. And as a result, group members may feel pressured to ignore ethical considerations or refrain from expressing natural doubts and concerns. And so, you know, you have to make decisions, both large and small, throughout every single day of your life. And, and, and you know, what do you want for breakfast? What time should you meet a friend for dinner? What what a, what college should you go to? How many children do you want to have? Who do you want to marry? Who do you want to date? What experiences do you want to have? What kind of car to buy? What kind of house? Where do you want to live? What city? What part of the country? What part of the world? You know, there's so many things that we're faced with. And when we're willing to make those decisions, our life becomes enjoyable. That's a very important aspect of existence. When faced with some decisions, you might be tempted to just flip a coin and let chance determine your fate. In most cases, we follow a certain strategy or series of strategies in order to arrive at a decision. And for many of the relatively minor decisions that we make each day, flipping a coin wouldn't be such a terrible approach. But for some of the complex and important decisions, we're more likely to invest a lot of time, research, effort, mental energy, and coming to the right conclusion. And here's a problem with communication in marriage. In communication when marriage, when people are trying to make decisions, most people have either a ruminative processor or a, uh, a, 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 a person who speaks what they need to say, what their thoughts are, that are what's called an auditory processor where they put their auditory thoughts forward and and so oftentimes a man will be a ruminative processor where he will get an idea research the idea go through all those the jumps and hurdles make a decision and then he'll express that idea to his partner and his partner if they're an uh, uh, an auditory processor, what they have a problem with is that they weren't part of the decision making and now they have to go through the process of thinking about a decision uh, mm-hmm. that is the just like the ruminative processor does. And so they end up auditorially having to speak to mom, dad, sister, brother, husband, wife, whatever. They're having to speak all this stuff in order to hear their brain process this idea. And the ruminative processor says, I've already done all this for you. So why are you doing this? Well, they're doing this so they can meet you at the decision and decide whether it's good for them too. And so sometimes they will reject right away before a decision can be made simply because they have not had the time and you're in too impatient as the ruminative processor to allow them to think for themselves and get to the decision. You know, we might uh, think about different models of communication for decision making. And there's some uh, that's called the single feature model. And that involves hinging your decision solely on a single feature. For example, imagine that you're buying soap. You know, faced with a wide variety of options at your local store, you decide to base your decision on the price and buy the cheapest type of soap available. In this case, you ignore other variables such as scent or brand or reputation or whatever it's made of. And we focus on just that single feature of buying soap. 
at a certain price. The, also, the single feature approach can be effective in situations where the decision is relatively simple and you're pressed for time. However, it's generally not the best strategy when dealing with more complex decisions. And so, uh, you know, imagine that you're interested in buying a, a new phone and you create a list of important features that you want that phone to have, and then you rate each possible option on a, uh, a zero to five scale, zero being the least, five being the most. That's called a Likert scale. And that might help you understand in a single way how to make a decision in a single feature approach. You know, the elimination by aspects of, of what features was on the phone is how you determine what you need. So the features that you need on a five scale, meaning the most, would be the things that you absolutely would need to have in that telephone. You know, when we're trying to determine uh, a decision in, in like a situation where people tend to employ two different decision-making strategies, there's the uh, heuristic strategy, uh, and it's a, it's a like a rule of thumb, a mental shortcut that allows people to make decisions and judgments quickly. So we're basing it on past decisions. But if you cannot immediately think of any examples, you might decide to go ahead and take a chance. And since the availability of uh, heuristic has led you to judge a few people get pulled over for speeding on your particular route, then you may decide to speed on that particular route. If you can think of examples of people getting pulled over on that particular route, then you may decide to have more caution and care. You know, the mental shortcut involves comparing our current situation to our prototype of a particular event or a behavior. For example, it, when trying to determine whether you should speed to get to somewhere on time, you might compare yourself to an image of a person who's most likely to get a speeding ticket. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about different models of decision making. So come back. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. Dr. Gary Bell is available for speaking engagements as well as teaching at your seminar or workshop and life coaching via telephone Skype or in person in the Seattle area. Dr. Bell brings his no-nonsense, straight-from-the-hip discussions each week on the show, but it doesn't stop there. Learn about motivation and psychology, one-couple marriage repair, a two-day workshop in Seattle, and more. Visit drgbmft.com today or call Dr. Gary Bell at 951-818-7856. That's drgbmft.com or 951-818-7856. It's time to serve, learn, change the world. Tune in each week for the power of young people to change the world. Hosted by NYLC's CEO, Amy Muirs. The program is a forum for both young people and the adults who love and support them. We make connections with others through stories of change, partnership, and new perspectives of issues facing the world today. Be sure to join us every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time or anytime on demand on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. 
That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it will take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now, back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back, everybody. You know, the decision-making process, which is what we're talking about, can be both simple, such as randomly picking out our available options, or complex, such as systematically rating different aspects of the existing choices. You know, the strategy we use on various factors include how much time we have to make the decision, the overall complexity of the decision, and the amount of ambiguity that is involved. Each and every day, we are faced with a multitude of decisions. Some of these are relatively small, such as deciding what to wear, what to have for breakfast. Others are big, like they could be mine, a major decision on the course of our life, such as where to go to school or where to have, where to, whether or not to have children. You know, some decisions have time while others must be made in a split second. But we employ a number of different decision-making strategies. We also fall prey to a number of common fallacies, biases, and other decision-making problems. But to discover what decision-making mistakes and obstacles might be influencing the choices you make every day calls for some analysis. You know, decision-making problems are often the result of relying too heavily on mental shortcuts that we have worked in the past. And so a heuristic is a sort of mental shortcut or rule of thumb that we utilize when making a judgment or decision. For instance, a heuristic decision might come down to the rule of thumb is, is this an emotional decision or is this a logical decision? And where do we want to land on our decision? Do we want to make it emotional? Well, if you want to redebate and redebate and redebate, that's the way to do it. If you want to be the person that takes stuff back to the store every other day, every time you buy stuff, then, then that's a person who is an emotional decision maker. So decision uh, 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 making with heuristics comes with a couple of major advantages. First, it allows us to reach conclusions quickly. Second, heuristics also tends to work quite frequently. But as with all kinds of shortcuts, they can sometimes have disadvantages. They can sometimes lead us to make mistakes and misjudge situations. So some shortcuts are the representativeness heuristic, and that involves judging the probability of an event based on how similar it is to our existing uh, example of such an event. For example, gamblers often judge the probability that they will win their next game based on whether or not they've won the last one. In reality, the games are not dependent on each other. Winning or losing is entirely up to chance. And then there's the availability heuristic model. And this involves judging the likelihood of an event based upon how quickly we can call similar events to mind. For example, you might believe that an airplane crash 
crashes more commonly than they really are simply because you can quickly think of several examples of high-profile airplane accidents. Another problem that can impact decision-making is our tendency to overestimate our own knowledge, our own skill, and our judgment. In a, in, in a classic experiment, look at this phenomenon, and this comes from uh, Barak Fischoff and uh, Paul Slavic and Sarah Leichenstein. They gave participants in a variety of, of statements that had two different answers. Participants were asked to select the answer they believed was correct, and then they rate how confident they were in their choices. And when people said that they were 100% confident in their answers, they were only correct about 80% of the time. Here's some questions. So why do people tend to be overconfident in their judgments? In a lot of cases, people might not realize how uninformed they really are. Essentially, we don't know what we don't know. In other cases, the information we have about a, a particular topic might simply be wrong, or it might come from unreliable sources. Look at our president. He may makes a lot of stupid decisions. You know, no matter what the cause, the tendency to overestimate our knowledge can lead to poor decisions. You know, imagine that you're traveling to Las Vegas with a friend and you've been there a couple of times before. You assume you know the route that you should take. You instruct your friend to take a particular exit that you believe is a correct one, but you misremember the route and the exit turns out to be the wrong one and your overconfidence in your ability to navigate the route led the wrong choice and added considerable time to your journey. So after something has happened, do you ever look back on the event and feel like you should have known what the outcome would be? You know, in psychology, this tendency to look back in retrospect and easily spot all the signs leading up to a particular outcome is known as the hindsight bias. Well, hindsight is meant to learn from, but you're not going to reinvent your choices. You know, sometimes, you know, I knew it all along is the idea, but this tendency can lead us to believe that we actually predict consequences in situations that are really dependent on absolute chance, you know. Uh, the hindsight bias can cause problems when it leads you to believe that you should have been able to foresee the outcome, but that it really wasn't predictable. But as a result, you might make future decisions based on the information you learned from past mistakes. Rather than relying on factors related to the present situation, you might find yourself trying to guess the outcome based on other uh, possibly unrelated experiences. Now, there's also this thing called an illusory correlation. And when making decisions, we sometimes see relationships that do not really exist. For, for example, we might believe that two unrelated events have some type of relationship simply because they occurred around the same time. In other cases, one time association between two different variables might lead us to assume that the two are somehow connected. For example, if you have a bad experience with a, with a rude server, you might mistake a believe that all servers are rude. This tendency to see relationships where none exist is known as the illusory correlation. In addition to leading to faulty beliefs that it's always going to be the way your experience was originally, that is going to lead you to make biased decisions that are sometimes stupid and sometimes may cause you to not experience things in life that you need to experience. You know, 
it, it's just amazing how we form our abilities to make decisions. This illusory correlation is very prejudicial in its process and can box people into phobias where they have social phobias, where they don't want to go to certain places because it reminds them of a bad experience, you know, whatever. You know, while we all like to believe that we make our choices based on logic and rationality, the fact is there are a number of decision-making problems that can, that can complicate this. Being aware of these potential pitfalls might help you make better decisions in the future. You know, I don't know about you, but I get stressed when someone asks me what I want for lunch sometimes because <laughs> sometimes I just don't want lunch. You know, food delivery apps give us hundreds of restaurants willing to bring our meals right to our door. Entertainment apps give us thousands of movie titles to choose from. So we live in an unprecedented age of options, and that has stunted our maturity. That has stunted our ability to understand our own character because we have to make so many choices. You know, it's the choices, the purest expression of freedom. Will. The freedom to choose allows us to shape our lives exactly how we wish. But unfortunately, if you think about it, your life is going to be based on your integrity. And that means that if you don't manage your integrity, which is what you do when no one else is looking, we have a tendency to end up in a nursing home by ourselves with nobody around us. Nobody cares about us. Nobody comes to visit. We go to the hospital, have a heart attack. Nobody's there but the doctor and the nurses. That's what happens when we don't manage integrity. That doesn't mean everybody in that situation is caused by that. But the bottom line is most people who are abandoned in their older years of life and even in their middle years of life, even in their younger years of life, did not manage their integrity. And that's the sad part of our existence. When you make better decisions for yourself, by yourself, that involve impacts on other people, the more you do that logically and do a cost-benefit analysis around what, how is this going to benefit others, how is this going to benefit me, what is this going to cost? What is it going to cost my relationship? When we start doing that kind of stuff, we do a much better job managing our choices. You know, what is bias? You know, if we think about it, the, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary calls it an inclination of temperament or outlook, especially a personal and sometimes unreasoned judgment. You know, and if we think about, you know, what we're doing, you'd expect that that we are going to judge things based on our experiences. And sometimes if we're not a curious person, if we're not a person who's who's intensely aware of the impact of decisions on other people, we will make biased choices based on what we want rather than what is good for others and good for ourselves. You know, some biases are conscious. For example, some people prefer dogs over cats. Some people think dogs are friendlier, more lovable, less likely to scratch. But, you know, the, 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 some people may not understand why they choose a color like blue over red or have an unconscious implicit bias. Implicit bias is everywhere and it affects the way we act and the way we treat people, sometimes with very alarming results, especially pertaining to people's color or culture or, or their desires or the way they present themselves. And then we have this thing called priming. 
And that's the effect that exposure to one stimulus has on our response to another stimulus. For example, two groups of people read the word yellow, followed by either banana or sky. And the group that read banana will process the word more quickly than the group that read sky because the semantic association between the fruit and its color is natural. The unconscious form of association is a large part how human brain trains our memories. This is how we learn languages, through pictures. So if you think about yellow and banana, we have a much better, stronger correlation to remember yellow simply because it correlates with banana. But if we think of the sky and yellow, well, oftentimes the skies aren't yellow unless you live in Seattle, which most of the time it's actually not yellow. It's gray. Um, anyway, you know, there's a lot of studies uh, that uh, suggest stereotypes uh, regarding more innate uh, ability to link to gender or race impact standardized test performance. And so uh, if, if we think about it, uh, some people may poor, uh, test poorly and be judged as, okay, they can't learn math or this culture can't learn math or this culture has a problem uh, reading such and such type of books. You know, the bottom line is, is that people are different and people come with strengths and weaknesses. And if we fall too stringently within a culture, we may have biases that are instinctly and innately created in our lives before we even had a choice to make choices for ourselves. And so stereotypes are so pervasive that they don't even need to be explicitly mentioned and they still rear their ugly heads. You know, merely priming people with their group identities is enough to to surface uh, social stereotypes that unconsciously affect our decisions and our performance. You know, uh, there's all kinds of studies out there, but, uh, you know, that we have to understand that we are biased oftentimes based on these uh, uh, cultural uh, phenomenons about growing up in a certain culture at a certain place. If you grew up in the Midwest, it's called the Bible Belt. If you grow up in Asia, well, I mean, you may be Asian and that's how you're viewed as Asian and maybe you're viewed as Chinese Asian or Japanese Asian or, or South Korean Asian or Malaysian, you know, whatever, each of those has its own connotation to how you are as a person. You know, if you're Russian, you may be viewed out as a warmonger now because of the, the, the war in Ukraine, even though it's Putin that's creating the whole thing. But you see, we may be labeling all Russians are this now, you know, and that's kind of crazy. You know, there's also other biases. You know, it doesn't just refer to a belief or a judgment about a specific thing, you know, about liking dogs more than cats. But in psychology, bias also refers to behavioral tendencies that affect how we reach conclusions and ultimately make choices. So there's some cognitive biases that we have to be aware of. There's one that's called the anchoring bias. We tend to anchor our decisions based on our first piece of information we receive. For example, if if you're used to paying $10 for shampoo and see it on sale for $8, that will make you feel like it's a deal. However, your friend's local store sells the shampoo, same shampoo for $12, so they may view the $10 bottle as the big de- as a great deal. And then there's a, the framing effect bias, and that is the manner in which choices are presented to us. It also affects how we view them. So so uh, if you think about a 
uh, traffic accident, you know, has, how fast were the cars going when they contacted each other? The researchers then replace the verb contacted with hit and bumped and collided and smashed. And for different groups of participants, as the intensity of the action verb increases, so did the participants' speed estimates. And so if you said they smashed, that would mean it's a really high mile an hour guess that that person might be making. And that is called a framing effect bias. Depending on the word that's used, that will bias the outcome. Then there's the in-group bias, and that's known as the bandwagon effect. And so that's when a person in a group acts in a similar way to other members of the group. Interestingly, the bias exists across arbitrary created groups, such as through a coin toss. In addition to groups based on religion or sports, among other affiliations. And so we have that in-group bias, which is what I would call a cultural bias. Also, there's the loss aversion bias. People don't like to lose or miss out on things. So loss aversion causes us to feel more strongly about avoiding a loss than receiving a gain. So it explains the endowment effect that our tendency to prefer things we already own over things that we don't own. So, you know, if we think about it, given the option to either trade our stuff or choose one or two items that we start with, uh, nothing, but half the people would say, okay, we started with no items and now we've gained stuff since then. And so if people have had to lose items because they've gained items, that also can bias a person's choices. So they have to factor in, do I have to get rid of this to make room for that? You know, there's all kinds of choices that we all make and we all have bias about that. Then there's this ambiguity bias, and that draws on our um, humanity's innate aversion to risk. And this is where people get lost in what's called existential angst. They cannot make a decision. Let's say you have two choices, and you can't choose between because you like both of them, and you can't choose between them. And so basically what will happen is our ambiguity is what will make many of our choices uh, not as tasty, not as rich, not as wanting, simply because there's an ambiguity about the decision. There's not enough emotion behind it to make you make a full and complete choice. All right, we're going to take another break. We're going to talk decision-making more, so come back. Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Dr. Gary Bell is available for speaking engagements as well as teaching at your seminar or workshop and life coaching via telephone Skype or in person in the Seattle area. Dr. Bell brings his no-nonsense, straight-from-the-hip discussions each week on the show, but it doesn't stop there. Learn about motivation and psychology, one-couple marriage repair, a two-day workshop in Seattle, and more. Visit drgbmft.com today or call Dr. Gary Bell at 951-818-7856. That's drgbmft.com or 951-818-7856. Unravel the mysteries of metaphysics every week on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Join host Barb Crowley 
as she and her insightful guest share what's been learned behind the veil, going just beyond our five senses. Now you can see things with an entirely different point of view. Tune in for Metaphysics, A View Through the Veil, broadcasting live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Use it to explore your advantage and deeper understanding. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it will take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now, back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back, everybody. All right, we're talking about how to make decisions and how to make good decisions. You know, the more choices you make through the day, the harder each one becomes for your brain. And eventually, it looks for shortcuts. And so as you make more decisions throughout the day, your reserve of willpower eventually becomes depleted. And now we fall back on our emotions and our biases as we end towards the end of the day making our choices. And so as you become more fatigued, you'll start to either make decisions impulsively instead of carefully thinking through consequences. You know, a lot of people will make a lot of choices like buying a new car in the evening and they make that choice in the evening because they're tired and they end up making that emotional choice rather than that logical choice. So you have to be careful when you're making big decisions. Are you making it after you're depleted or not depleted? We want to make sure that we are have the energy to weigh options. You know, it's way easier to stick with the status quo and keep uh, you know things going the way they are. But is it is it why is it something that's good for us? You know, chances are it's not. We like to fall. We're lazy people. We like to fall into habits. We like to fall into patterns because we don't like to think too much. But the thing is, if you are able to make more choices and you allow yourself the energy and the will and the reserve to do that, you're going to have a much more fulfilling life with experiences and learning. In short, the more decisions, simpler, complex, you are subject to, the less mental energy and willpower you will have left at the end of the day. So you need to keep that in mind when you're having to make big choices. You know, uh, a lot of people have their dumbest arguments in as couples in the evening after they've made lots of choices during the day and now their brains are tired and they're just beating each other up saying stupid things and not listening simply because their brain is tired from the day's worth of decision you know decision fatigue and impulse eating is also a correlation if you've had to make a lot of choices during the day and then you come home and you want to cope with the idea of I made a lot of decisions I'm really tired I'm going to reward myself with eating crap 
And so a lot of people end up doing that. You know, some people get trapped in poverty, you know, because they think that that's all they're entitled to, that they're going to have to just work like slaves every day of their life and never really fully get complete uh, out of out of poverty. They never live out of poverty because they won't make choices that will give them a chance to get out of poverty. So the next time you need to make a big decision, whether you're going to move to a different city, accept a new job, go to college, do whatever, you know, it might not be a good idea to go looking for a new kind of uh, uh, something at at the grocery store because that might be uh, depleting you from the ability to make the bigger choice. You know, if you want to make hard decisions easier, you know, you need to be fresh and ready. You know, choice can be hard. There's some decisions that will never be easy. You know, the the if you think if you're faced with options uh, 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 <clears throat> to go down a harsh path or an easy path or stick with com- something comfortable, you know, most people are going to choose what's comfortable. And so, you know, the deal is, is that we want to live our life in a way that we want to also do hard. Hard makes your life easier. And so that makes means when we make hard choices and we dedicate ourselves to those choices, we put our will behind those choices, we put our emotions behind those choices, we will do better in life simply because we will have the expertise that that hard experience will give us. You know, less is really more. And faced with choice overload, people are less likely to do things. So the trick is to find a balance between having enough options to attract people in the first place, but not so many that people become overwhelmed and walk away. It's difficult, but but if a, a, a company, let's say, that's selling something can find a sweet spot, they'll re- reap rewards. And so, uh, you know, the simpler that they make their message about what their product will accomplish, the better off they're going to be as far as people making the decision to buy their products. The other thing is to make things concrete. In order for people to understand the differences between choices, they have to be able to understand the consequences associated with the choice. The consequences need to be felt in a vivid sort of way. So if consumers are able to connect with the product with a, at, a, at a visceral level, they'll be able to likely buy it. So consider uh, consumers spending 15 to 30% more money when using a credit or debit card rather than cash. Be- because there's a lack of seeing the cash actually leave your hands. You know, credit cards are like tokens, and that's what happens when we're in Vegas. We're not betting with money, we bet with tokens. The reason we bet with tokens is because it's not real money. It converts our money into something fake, and therefore we associate to it as if it's not real money. Also, you want to categorize. Think back that a grocery store with a whole ton of products you know, uh, it has all kinds of options. If you're going to go to the grocery store and you have to create this new bunch of new recipes, that's going to be a lot of decision making that you have to make as you walk down the aisle. Consider that when you're having to make more choices coming later in the day. You know, uh, uh, you really want to hone down the complexity of your day and of your decisions and weigh that as a very serious part of your life.
You know, uh, choice is hard, but our brains are capable of astounding complex calculations. You know, we have a lot of activity in our brain, and the buildup is do we make complex choices logically or do we make it through our own biases? Do we do what is right or do we what, do what we think is right? And so do we do with integrity or do we not do with integrity? You know, so it's really important for us to weigh that. You know, the, the, the framework to streamline your decision-making process, if you need to choose something uh, and you can't seem to make up your mind, set yourself a deadline for making the decision and stick with it. And so the reason we make decisions are not always rational. They can be isolated from who we are, where we are, or maybe even how long it took us to decide uh, what to wear that day. But by being aware of the psychological factors that affect our choices, setting a timeline can be a very important part of that because that gives us the time to seriously have to do the work to make the decision. If you're a procrastinator, you don't make deadlines and you fall into depression because procrastination correlates with depression. Procrastinators and people that are indecisive are depressed because they lack the confidence in their own choice to be one of logic rather than of emotion. They feel that all of their things, things in life have to be made by a feeling. And that's what depression does. That's also what fear does. So people that live in fear have a lot of problems making choices and being confident in themselves. Their self-esteem erodes and they have a tendency to do what they feel all the time and always looking for a feeling rather doing them what they think. You know, social cognition is the encoding, the storage, the retrieval, the processing of information about, you know, members, about our perspectives, about objects around us, environments around us, where we work, where we live, what our children are doing. But it also is a specific approach to social psychology that studies how people's thoughts and behaviors are influenced by the presence of other people. So, you know, if you're going to walk into a room and you're the smart smartest person in the room, it would be very wise of you to go to a room where everybody's smarter than you. Why? So that you can learn. People that are curious are going to build wisdom. And we're going to talk about that in our next show when we talk about wisdom and the value of it and the resiliency of wisdom. You know, there's a lot of social cognition, which is basically called the social schema theory. And that theory suggests that we have mental representations for specific social situations. For example, if you meet a new teacher, your 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 teacher schema may be activated and you may therefore for automatically associate this person with wisdom and authority if that's how you've experienced past teachers. And so the bottom line is that person may come with wisdom or experience that you did not expect. Maybe it's a different type of wisdom. Maybe they don't have common sense, but they have a lot of wisdom in what they do. And so we have to understand that our schema can also prejudice our decisions. When a schema is more accessible, this means that it can be more 
quickly activated and used as a particular situation. So, you know, two cognitive processes that increase the, the accessibility of schemas are salience and priming. In social cognition, salience is the degree to which a particular social object stands out relatively to other social objects in a situation. The higher salience of an object, the more likely the schemas for the object will be made accessible. So if there's one female in a group of seven males, the female gender schemas may be more accessible and influence the group's thinking and behavior towards a female group member. But if there's several females in the same group, uh, more more females than there are males, then our schema may be different about each female. And so we have to think about the, this accessibility because that's a very thing, a very important thing. Also, the accessibility of frightening schemas, uh, which increase the likelihood that a person will perceive shadows, background noises. It's just like if you're going to enter into a haunted, uh, you know, some kind of ghost movie or horror movie movie, you know, something scary, we're going to come in with that schema already in our head. If we're going to go into a, a haunted house at Halloween, we're going to have that schema in our mind before we enter the haunted house, which creates a lot of anticipation and fear and unknowns and all kinds of things. We also have uh, the influence of our culture. And although people from all cultures use schemas to understand the world, the content of our schemas has been found to differ for individuals based on their cultural upbringing. For example, uh, a, 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 a Bantu herdsman and a Scottish settler uh, are compared to their schemas about cattle because cattle are essential to the lifestyle of the Bantu people. So the Bantu herdsman schemas for cattle are far more extensive than the schemas of the Scottish settler. So the Bantu herdsman is able to distinguish their cattle from dozens of others while the Scottish settler who's just bought cattle may not understand who what differentiates their cattle from other people's you know there's all kinds of, of of cultural influences that shape the basic ways in which people automatically perceive and think about their environment for example a number of studies have found that people who grow up in east asian cultures such as china and japan tend to develop holistic thinking styles whereas people brought up in Western cultures like Australia and the United States tend to develop analytic thinking styles. And so typically Eastern holistic thinking styles is a type of thinking which people focus on the overall context and how it affects everyone's uh, 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 life rather than the Western analytic thinking, this type of thinking in which people focus on individual things and, and neglect to consider the surrounding context for how they come across. So there's some great tips on making decisions. Um, you know, some decisions are so simple that you're barely able to be aware you're making them. But they can make or break a project or an entire business. They can and they can make or break our country. They can make or break our presidency. They can make or break our politics, and we're seeing that every single day of our life. To avoid making a bad decision, you need to bring a range of decision-making skills together. Invest. Investigate the situation, create a constructive environment, explore your options, generate good alternatives, select the best solution, evaluate your plan, and communicate your decision and take action. 
And so these are factors that we all have to think about when we're making decisions. All right. That's our show. I want to thank everybody for listening. You know, I love hearing from you. And you can do that at voiceamerica.com, the Empowerment Channel, Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Now remember, most people have the decision-making skills of a squirrel crossing the road. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. One more bad decision, and I own the whole set. You know, if you don't want to forget your dreams, go back to sleep. And just when you want to fall asleep, your brain wants to review all of your decisions. And a lot of people of us have that problem. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. That's our show for this week. Please join Dr. Gary Bell for another edition of Absurd Psychology next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Now go impress your friends and family with what you've learned today and have them tune in next week so they can be almost as smart as you. 